0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: I think workers are going to be unwilling to accept anything less than real change in the value of their work and structural change in the economy that transforms these jobs once and for all, into jobs that are valued by society, but also jobs that people can live on and provide a decent life for their families.
2: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, First, some exciting news. Uh, We won the Webby Award. The show won the Webby Award for Best Interview Podcast for 2020 and the People's Voice Award. Thanks to all of you for the same. It's really exciting. And I want to just take the moment to really thank Jeffrey Geld for doing such an amazing job producing and editing the show under pretty difficult circumstances lately. And Roger Karma for... Synthesizing amounts of information at a speed like no one can believe. I'm really proud of the show, but very lucky to work with this team. Um, and so thank you to both of them. And of course, all of you for listening. It's a nice, a nice bit of recognition for us all. My guest today is Mary Kay Henry, uh, the president of the Service Employees International Union. This is a two million strong person union that includes a huge number of America's uh, what we now call essential workers and frontline workers. And I wanted to have this conversation because I've been talking on the podcast and thinking a lot about the ways in which the workers we now understand to be essential are treated in our economy as disposable and not just disposable, but as low status, right? They don't make much money oftentimes, they're not treated well. They're not, um, they're not given respect in the culture for their work. People don't look at you differently if you say you're a home healthcare aide. Um, whereas, you know, people brag about being, and I don't mean to pick on management consultants, but a management consultant. And 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 why is that? And of course, one of the answers there is power. There's power in the economy that is operating alongside everything else. And the groups that do the most, of course, to bring power to jobs and workers who often don't start out having it are the unions and SEIU in particular. Uh, Mary Kay Henry is the first woman uh, to lead SEIU. She's been named uh, to Fast Company magazines, 100 most creative leaders in the economy. Politico named her one of 50 visionaries reshaping American politics. In 2019, the governor of California tapped her to co-chair the state's Future of Work Commission. And she's somebody who's able to bring um, a deep organizing background, a very big macro view of the economy, and also a very intense emotional relationship with the people doing the hardest work in the economy right now, all together in one package. Um, So this is, in my view, an important conversation. As always, my email is Kleinshow at Vox.com. Here is Mary K Henry. Mary Kay Henry, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you, Ezra. So first, just how are you? What has it been like doing this work at this time?
1: I'm in uh, deep grief about the individual lives that have been lost. One of the first members uh, that I heard about is a woman I've known for 25 years. She's a 30-year nursing home worker in uh, Detroit, Michigan. I marched with her up and down Grand Avenue on a strike 10 years ago. She was incredibly loving towards my mother, um, who I used to bring to union events. And she was one of the first names I heard of someone who had lost her life from COVID-19. And uh, I was telling you, Ezra, before we started that you know there are days when the, the waves of grief, because of the number of losses have been uh, overwhelming to absorb. Like we have a Connecticut healthcare leader who had 11 members die in nursing homes just in a week. I think it was in the fourth week of the pandemic roiling through Connecticut. And then our property services local in New York City has had over 100 people die, more than they lost in the trade tower. And we see the numbers every day, but When I see the numbers, I think of these individual human beings who were doing their very best to show up and care for the people they love. So that's one emotion that I have learned in these 12 weeks to understand I have to hold and I got to open space in my day to weep off of the phone and podcasts and things. And then the second thing I feel right behind that grief is like a uh, fury that uh, essential workers across the service and care sector are in this situation, that President Trump didn't do his job, that people are being left to fend for themselves. It just pisses me off. So that's another uh, emotion I feel. And the temp goes up as I listen to What working people are facing every day. I did a Walkout Wednesday Facebook Live event earlier today. I listened to a farm worker in California, terrified of going home and taking the virus with them. I listened to a gig worker for Uber Eats uh, who has three kids, uh, very concerned about contracting the virus as she delivers food to people's home, has no personal protective equipment, scrounged it up herself you know, just on and on and on uh, stories like that, that is completely inexcusable in my mind. And we are a nation that can like pivot and make millions of people stay home, but we can't figure out how to protect millions of workers that are showing up every day to help the rest of us stay home and stay safe. It's just like maddening. Totally maddening.
2: How many members has CIU lost?
1: You know, we're trying to uh, wrap our arms around the number, but the known ones were into the hundreds. And I think when we are able to take a breath and collect it at all, it'll be in the thousands. 75% of our members are in work every day hospitals, nursing homes, home care, which are huge hotspots. We have corrections officers that have lost their lives, people that are incarcerated experiencing unprecedented exposure, as you know, and then uh, lots of public service workers. Like We have loads of unemployment claims processors who are spending nights in offices because they're so dedicated to getting checks out the door to the unprecedented number of people that are filing unemployment claims. And they too are risking exposure because not every building's been deep cleaned and they don't have the protective equipment they need and on and on and on. And then janitors, security officers, and airport workers. I heard this troubling story the first week in Seattle where a security officer who was helping people in and out of their cars, which is not really part of his job, but was part of how he showed respect to everybody that rolled up to the front door. And he contracted the virus and died. just trying to do the right thing to another human being. So we don't know, and we're going to do a wall of remembrance because we are bound and determined to uh, make sure nobody dies in vain from this. And I hear that from every essential worker that I talk to and speak out with because these are their co-workers that are dying and they don't want it to be in vain. And we're doubling down on fighting to make these jobs that have never been valued in this economy, good jobs. And that's the third emotion I feel, which is a sort of renewed determination that against the odds, we're going to make what seems impossible possible, which is we believe we have to eliminate poverty wage work in this country. And we believed it before COVID, and we are more committed to it now than ever because it's now uh, literally a matter of life and death.
2: You you mentioned the way this work is not valued or has not been valued. What has it been like watching this unvalued work get reclassified as essential? What, what, What have you thought morally and philosophically is going on as that shift has happened so quickly?
1: Well, my first reaction to it was, finally, you know what I mean? Finally, people understand how critical these jobs are to the functioning of a nursing home, the delivery of food in fast food, or the public service workers that are, you know, kicking these checks out the door. But then right behind that, as the clapping and the recognition went on, the number of stories where employers were refusing to follow basic CDC guidelines on health and safety and personal protective equipment And then telling a fast food worker who called and said, I was exposed, I need to stay home. You shouldn't have put yourself in a position to be exposed to the virus. Don't go back to the same store, report to another store because we're not going to pay you the two weeks of paid sick. You know, that's the kind of uh, disrespect and inhumane conditions that uh, people are facing. And so I'm thrilled, Ezra, at the opening to have the conversation about the undervaluing of work and the need, if we're going to call them essential jobs, to uh, invest in them as if they were essential jobs. Do you think
2: we will? And maybe another way of putting that is that something that I worry about is that we are calling these workers essential as a way to not have to value them, as a way to replace pay and protection and their own safety, right? In many cases, being an essential worker means that you have to go to work in a dangerous job. And if you decide the danger is too much for your family or or, or anyone else, if you quit it, you can't get unemployment. Um, The the reclassification as essential, as a hero, when many people, they just signed up for a job, not heroics, and certainly not heroics that are underprotected. It's a way in the public conversation of not having to value them because you are praising them.
1: Yeah, I don't think the change is going to happen by accident or simply because of the pandemic. I think the change in the value of this work is going to happen because working people are standing up and demanding what they need to be safe. And uh, people are fed up in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime. And I think workers are going to be unwilling to accept anything less than real change in the value of their work and structural change in the economy that transforms these jobs once and for all into jobs that are valued by society, but also jobs that people can live on and provide a decent life for their families. I think once and for all, women's care work is going to need to be valued. Um, And it hasn't been since the beginning of our nation. And it's been in the spotlight. And we understand that these nursing home workers that have, you know, paid a little bit above minimum wage, um, maybe have paid sick, but certainly can't afford their employer's health care coverage, those jobs are on the front line, caring for a growing senior population in our country. And it's time we invest in a long term care infrastructure where that work is valued and the people they're caring for are valued in a way that allows everybody to remain safe and healthy in those nursing facilities. So it's just one example of like hundreds of home care workers you know, driving from store to store, trying to find personal protective equipment. There's no system for distributing it. They worried that their shopping was going to expose the elders they were then go caring for. You know, so it becomes these impossible choices that people are forced to make when the system doesn't support them being able to take care of themselves, but also take care for the people that they're deeply committed to. You know, I'm frankly sh- shocked Ezra that we didn't see healthcare workers abandoning abandoning their jobs. The situation this nation put the healthcare workforce in in the first 2 to 3 weeks of this pandemic and ongoing in certain hotspots like New York is totally immoral and unacceptable. And it's a credit to each and every one of those human beings that they walked through their fear, that they dealt with the trauma that they're having to experience each and every day on the floors of these hospitals and nursing homes and risking infection and death. I find it kind of remarkable what working people chose to do in terms of staying at the battle stations, even though they weren't armed to fight the battle.
2: There's a deep question, I think, about how our economy works that is getting a spotlight shown on it. And I wanna hear how it works from your perspective on this. We have these jobs that we have traditionally not valued in terms of how they are paid, how they're protected, and what status they're assigned in our society. And then as soon as the world goes sideways, it turns out those are the ones we call essential. How, in your view, in the economy in quote-unquote normal times, does a job get valued? Why are some jobs valued highly and, and, and others aren't? What are, What are is the reality of how the economy makes those decisions or Whoever makes those decisions,
1: I think it gets uh, decided by the interaction between corporate power and who's elected in government. And in other countries of the world, government puts a check on corporate power, and workers have a organization and a seat at the table to make sure they lead a decent life. So, fast food workers in every other country of the world are getting eighty to ninety percent of their income replaced as they were sent home because of the pandemic. They have healthcare, they have paid time, you know, and we we talked to a UK worker uh, last week, a Mindy who was fighting for the other 10% and we were all putting our fists up in the air for her cause we thought, okay, good for you. But in this country, uh, Adriana Alvarez, who's in Chicago, a single mom of a son had uh, her 40 hour week cut to eight hours at the beginning of the spread of the pandemic in Chicago, had no paid sick leave, works for $12 an hour and was trying to kind of rob Peter to pay Paul and operate on fumes and homeschooling her son and was grateful that the Chicago public school system dropped off a hotspot and a Google Chromebook for her to uh, do remote learning from home. Because she had no connectivity before the remote work started, and th- there's story after story like that. And now, when things got stabilized, for her, she's kind of trying to pick up other shifts uh, at other stores, and that's a decision that the multinational corporation of McDonald's makes to play by the you know rules that have been rigged in this system long before COVID. devalues the work. I think the care work was a decision back in the 30s when we were trying to pass Social Security, Fair Labor Standards Act, the National Labor Relations Act. Home care workers, domestic workers, uh, farm workers were all written out of the act as a compromise between northern legislatures and southern legislators who didn't want black and brown workers covered by any laws. And so because those workers had no rights under the law, their wages fell further and further behind because they couldn't join together and bargain a better life. So there's historic reasons. And then there's a system where our politics has favored corporations Who supposedly were going to create good jobs for us, and that's how we were all going to thrive. And it's crystal clear that that trickle down theory is long past, and we have to have an economy where we have elected officials standing with workers to hold corporations accountable to investing in their frontline workforce. And if we could transform poverty wage work, wages would go up and jobs would get better for everybody up and down the economy.
2: Tell me a bit about the story of how this was done in the 20th century with manufacturing work because manufacturing jobs became good jobs. They didn't start out that way. They didn't start out well-paid. They didn't start out safe. Um, In many cases, they remained uh, relatively unsafe, but they did become both in real terms of how much money they made, but also in our national mythology, right They are. you know, when you hear either Joe Biden or Donald Trump talk they sort of talk as if the center of the economy is blue-collar mail manufacturing work. And what is your version of the story by which that happened?
1: That workers joined together and sat down in Flint and said, we're not working anymore until we get paid enough to feed our families. And that workers deciding to disrupt the business catalyzed strikes all across steel, auto, and rubber, which were the dominant industries in that generation. And companies made a decision in order to be able to produce their products to recognize the union and bargain a contract. And that action got codified in law, mostly as a way to stop worker disruptions and strikes. Um, Labor law didn't encourage organizing of workers It contained it in the 30s. And so I think that's what's so hopeful, Ezra, about this moment. Long before COVID, we were seeing red for Ed strikes, uh, Google workers 60% walking off the job one day to create a global statement about what they expected from Google, Uber and Lyft drivers in California striking Amazon workers in the midst of COVID and before walking off the job. We've been backing the fast food worker strikes for the past seven years. Those are all disruptions that I think in this moment are going to move to another scale because now basic health and safety protections aren't being followed. And while people were trying to rob Peter to pay Paul to get away on, get by on poverty wages, they're not willing to tolerate being so disrespected as being willing to have their lives sacrificed. That's enough. And it's sparking a new level of workers' brave decisions to disrupt the operation and get employers like Domino's after those workers. I don't know if you saw that story in California. Domino's workers kept repeatedly striking. They wanted four things. They got two. They're going back to work, but they're trying to figure out how to get the other two. They got the personal protective equipment, and they got the paid sick, and they're still fighting to get um, what they call pandemic pay, which is extra pay for the extra effort and exposure they're putting themselves through to deliver pizzas. So those are examples to me of how when people join together, they can actually improve Uh, their conditions.
2: How different is the modern structure and capability for striking? Um, And I mean that on two levels. One is that there are different laws than there were um, in, say, the 1940s and 50s. But also, a lot of the workers, and particularly a lot of the workers in industries that SEIU specializes in, like home healthcare workers, you're not dealing with a huge shop floor there. And a lot of these companies, including some of the ones you just mentioned, they contract and subcontract and sub-subcontract out their work. And so you have Amazon workers, and then you have workers who you know work for some contractor I can't even name. So Amazon doesn't have to take full responsibility, or that is true with you know a lot of the people who do service work on the Google campuses. So how is it different now, and how does that change the work you have to do?
1: You just described what some people call the fissuring of work but which the workers we've been organizing call the work going to pieces, that a job isn't a job for one employer. It's a a set of tasks that you do that you stitch together to make a life. And it can be tasks in the gig economy, or it can be a set of jobs in the franchised economy in fast food or in subcontracted economy. We had a port truck driver on this called today who talked about being an independent contractor and never getting paid enough to actually take money home. The money covers his, all the stuff he's required to provide in order to drive the truck, the insurance, his health care coverage. And, you know, if he works enough hours, maybe he takes $60 home a week. I mean, that is just an absurd uh, abuse of uh, that man's uh, labor uh, to have those kinds of conditions. And so the biggest difference I would say to, from today to today from yesterday is the structure of a job and the idea that I worked for one employer for multiple years. There's a lot more movement between jobs in the economy and a lot more distance between the employer that employs the person and pays the money and who actually the worker is interfacing with as their uh, employer. And so that's the biggest challenge, I would say, in organizing. But I have to say, Ezra, we have a 100-year history in SEIU. All of the workers we represent faced very similar structures where employers were trying to offload responsibility for employees. But there is a way through the grit and determination of working people that if you stay together like immigrant flat janitors did in Chicago that birthed our union, after 10 years of struggle, uh, they won recognition from the building owners that really had ultimate responsibility for their wages, hours and working conditions, but they employed contractors to create distance between them and the workers. That same kind of structure exists today, only it's much more of a standard throughout the economy.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Borough. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. borough.com slash box.
2: When you think over the history of your union, what is the campaign that you take the most inspiration from now?
1: Oh my gosh, there's like three or four for me. I would say our justice for janitors movement when building owners thought they could break the union that was mostly done by black workers in center cities. And as a way to break the union, they moved all the black workers out and uh, brought immigrant workers in. And many of those black workers became security officers who are also now in our union because they understood that was in their self-interest. And so we fooled those building owners and contractors by Rebuilding the union through the justice for janitors fight in the 80s. I'm incredibly proud of the home care organizing that was done in the 90s, primarily in our union, where, again, primarily immigrant women of color and poor white women in rural communities joined together and said, we want to be invisible no more. We do uh, important work that makes all other work possible in the economy. And we want to be invested in and respected by the government and by employers. And they made a breakthrough. Um, The family child care providers in the state of California, after 16 years, finally won their union this year when Governor Gavin Newsom wrote them into the law. They had been excluded since the beginning of time. So those are three examples of. Pride that I have. And we're incredibly proud of the determination and perseverance of the fast food workers. Because if it's my last breath, we're going to get McDonald's to recognize the union for those workers and bring the entire fast food sector out of poverty and into being the best first job in America that has wages, benefits, training. There's lots of things that can be done. And workers want the opportunity. To be their best selves and be able to do that job with dignity or be able to move into that job and up and out of it to other jobs that they've always dreamed of doing.
2: But but let me ask you that question not from the, the perspective of pride, which I recognize sort of how I phrased it, but more from the perspective of tactics. What about any of those campaigns, right? As people try to imagine, how would you unionize a McDonald's franchise-oriented workforce, or gig workers, you know, who work for Uber or Lyft, or or whatever it might be in this sort of modern fissured economy. What are the the innovations or the approaches from some of these that chart a path?
1: I think one innovation is that we have to be as big and bold as the employers are, and so. We don't think about one state or one franchise owner at a time. We think about the entire fast food sector. And that's why we wanted to back the fearlessness and courage of the fight for 15 and a union leaders. And we want to combine political power with the workers' power to see if we can force a change in behavior of the corporations who I think in this moment now more than ever, Ezra. We have to call corporations to their social responsibility. It is not okay that they've lobbied against paid sick. It is totally unacceptable that they won't call the president out for not enforcing the Defense Protection Act and getting the supplies that we need to the front lines of this pandemic. And uh, they need to invest in the essential workforce And change the value of work across the entire service and care sector. So I think thinking big about what's possible, one. Two, recognizing that in the U.S., these multinational corporations get away with murder. And murder is no longer an expression. That's an actual reality that's happening in the course of this pandemic. And they need to be held to account in our nation, in the way that Europe does, Australia, some countries in Africa, those corporations are required to pay uh, jobs uh, that people can raise their families on. It's an ethos by the politics and by the systems and structures for working people to bargain through sectoral councils or works councils. There's all different names for them. But elected officials and working people don't allow corporations to do to working people and communities what We have tolerated in our country and I think workers are demonstrating that they've had it and we're not going to let this be the way it is anymore. And there's because of the pandemic disruption, I think this reckoning. Uh, is going to lead us to addressing this pain and inequality once and for all. When
2: you say workers are showing that they've had it, tell me a bit about what you're hearing. I imagine that the conversation, the reclassification as essential workers is giving many workers a sense of the crucial role they play that maybe they, they didn't have before. On the other hand, I'm sure there's fear about hurting people if you're in care work and you're going to all, you know, it's got to be very hard to strike under those conditions as you think about the people you care for. Or um, particularly if you see a lot of people in your family being unemployed and a period of incredible economic strain and terror. So how do these things come together? What are you hearing from workers and, and, and what are their considerations as they think about whether or not to flex some of this power?
1: Well, uh, Lynette Jones is a nursing home leader of our union in Chicago, and she was just part of a 100 person bargaining committee that served a 10 day strike notice on the nursing home sector in Chicago for all the reasons we've discussed. No personal protective equipment paid that was adding an additional strain. You know, she was getting to 15 because of the minimum wage law, not because the employers uh, wanted to invest in her. And they decided to strike Ezra because they care deeply for residents, but thought that the best way they could advocate for residents was by insisting on conditions changing in the nursing home so that there was enough staff, there was enough cleaners, there was enough personal protective equipment, both for the staff and for the residents to reduce the spread of the virus. And they won before they had to strike. So she's an example of a good story. I just dealt with um, a mobile worker alliance a leader in Southern California. She's driving for Uber Eats. She's been on repeated strikes with other drivers because she's trying to force Uber to make good on their public claim that they're going to raise wages and provide personal protective equipment, but she's seen no evidence of it. And so she's fighting for that. So I know what you're speaking of about the conflict for the care workers especially, but I think the care workers are being pushed to the brink by employers that are not creating the mechanisms for people to do problem-solving And get what they need to the places they need it most in the hospitals, which is what's happening in our unionized hospitals. Um, There's a stark difference in Pittsburgh between Allegheny General Hospital, where Michelle Boyle works as an RN, and University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where we've been trying to organize a union for seven years across six hospitals, And the employer refuses to treat the service and care and tech workers with the same respect as the registered nurses and doctors in that facility. And the registers and nurses and doctors have been terrific in saying, wait a minute, the environmental service people need masks. All the dietary workers need masks and personal protective equipment and I think that we're going to see more and more. And there's been walkouts from those hospitals in Pittsburgh. There was a spontaneous walkout in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, when a nursing home worker was told by her supervisor, don't wear a mask in there. The resident will be upset. And the nursing home worker looks at the supervisor and says, are you kidding me? I've I've cared for this man for 15 years. We love each other. I'm going to go explain to him why this mask is a way for me to protect myself and my three children who I've shown him pictures of and him, you know, like, so there's these absurd situations that workers are having to contend with. And I have to say, Ezra, as every week unfolds and we still don't have what we need to get the job done, you know, people are saying, I'm not essential. I'm disposable. I'm sacrificial. So there's a tide turning that I think is going to catalyze more and more worker activism because the words are not being matched by deeds and corporations are sitting on the sidelines and they're witnessing ridiculous things come out of 1600 Pennsylvania and from the Republican Senate and people are mad about it. It's just wrong.
2: So something you will hear from sort of traditional economists is that workers are paid the value of their marginal labor and that mm-hmm. these jobs that aren't paid that well are because they're low skilled jobs and many people can do them and the workers are easy to replace and this is just distortion in the in the marketplace what is your answer to that kind of like neoclassical theory of wage setting
1: I just say back, let's look around the world and understand that other countries have shared economic prosperity and way less economic inequality and pay people a living wage. And I just think that economic argument is completely outdated and not sustainable, certainly in this environment. And when you are an 80 percent Consumer economy, which is what the United States of America is, you have to pay people more, not just because it's moral to do that, but it makes good economic sense. We've seen in the places in the nation where wages are going up because the minimum wage is rising, and other workers who were above its wages are also going up. People have more money in their pockets, there's more small business growth. We had a motel owner in SeaTac that threatened the city council when we moved the first $15 initiative, say, I'm going to close my business. I won't be able to operate. And three years later, that man added on an addition to his motel because business was booming. So there's plenty of evidence that contradicts that Poppycock, from my perspective. And that's why it's time to rewrite the rules and transform both our economy and our democracy so people can work hard for a living and lead a decent life. It's a very basic human right. And it's a value that I actually think employers in this country share. But employers got to get the same guts that workers have and step out of the shadows and challenge a politic that is allowing people in this nation to be more exposed to the pandemic, get infected and died. And it's just, it's wrong that essential workers are dying at higher rates and that those jobs are done more by people of color and women. And that horrendous, outrageous number of deaths in those communities has to end. How
2: should economic value be decided? I was was having this conversation with Mariana Mazzucato, the economist, and she makes the point that we've defaulted to this idea that value is whatever price is. Whatever price is being charged or whatever price is being paid, well, that's your value right there. And that in past periods, there was a much more intense, contested debate over how to assign value. Does the public do it? What is it based on? Is it based on what, you know, gets put into something or how it changes? Or is it something we set as a society? I like got that more sort of economic philosophical level. How should we think about how to assign value and what we value?
1: Well, I have to answer through a story. So excuse me if I work my way there, Ezra. I just had this conversation as part of the governor's Task Force on Jobs and Recovery in California, where I'm talking with two other community leaders to primarily business CEOs that are all headquartered in California, you know, that are trying to figure out how do we deal with 3 million people unemployed? How do we deal with the 7 million people whose work didn't pay them enough not to be supported by food stamps, uh, Medicaid, housing subsidy, right? Because We are subsidizing corporate low wages as taxpayers all throughout this economy. And that corporate welfare is acceptable, but then we demean people who presumably aren't working enough and have to get public assistance in order to make ends meet. You know, it's wacky, the system that we have. And so I said to the business leaders Is this a moment where you can imagine that we are going to share the value of? all working people being able to be paid enough in order to spend in the state and in order to lead a decent life where their kids can flourish, where we address the systemic inequality in education, housing, transportation, you know, that's been woven into the system. Can we see this rupture of staying at home and the economy in such a free fall, you know, 33 million headed to 40 million unemployed. Like none of us have ever confronted these facts before, Ezra. And so I have to tell you, you know, three people spoke up and said, maybe it's time, but it's going to require a change that's systemic and not one by one by one. You know, it's not like Henry Ford stepping out and settling, but I just think if the shared value can be, that we all want the same thing for our family. We all want to have our health. We want our families to be safe and we want an economic security and we want a better future for our kids. And those basic values, most people nod to across civil society in the United States. So if we agree on that value, then what are we each going to do differently that make that possible for everybody? In my case, we were thinking of the 40 million people in California, 10 million of whom are consigned to poverty. And Another 20 million are kind of right on the edge. You know, they're the $400 away from homelessness or getting kicked out of their house because they're living paycheck to paycheck. And so I just feel like this moment, this reckoning is opening up a conversation where your theoretical question could actually be challenged in practice that we have to get three million people off of unemployment and back to work. And there's lots of work that needs to be done that we didn't ever have to imagine before. Like, Could we create the California Cleaning Corps and train every janitor to do what our building service janitors have been certified to do on COVID-19 deep cleaning? Can we expand the care workforce so we can get uh, elders out of nursing homes that don't need to be there, but can be supported at home and make those jobs good jobs that are like the, uh, the eyes and ears of the healthcare system so we're avoiding high cost hospitalization there's so much like innovation and creativity that we could use like can the percentage of us that just learned that we actually can work from home what transformation occurs in center cities if more people are doing remote work for the long haul now i just i just think that um if people were willing to see the possibility and if in the possibility my self interest is addressed then it seems like we can create a set of agreements between employers, policymakers and working people that could transform the economy and make it more equal and better opportunity for everybody, no matter what our race, what our immigration status or what geography we live in.
2: I mean, this gets to an interesting both debate in the union movement and and distinction in, in in America's labor relations, which is, you have a lot of other countries where the relationship between employers and labor is a lot less oppositional than it is here, and there's a sense here for all kinds of reasons, and and I think at times merited that it just. The way organizing has been either works or has been forced to work, it always pits interests against each other that often should not be pitted against each other at all. As you say, in many cases, like there should be a real alignment of interest between workers and employers. There's like a very deep sort of assumption that it has to be conflict when that conflict has a, a tendency to. Like destroy both sides, at least at times. Are there things for the American labor movement to, to learn, or at least for the American policy structure to learn from how other countries have done this and what results they have seen?
1: Yes. But just like on the healthcare debate, Ezra, I think we need our version. I think there's loads of examples from around the world of structures and systems and laws. But I think it begins with can working people be backed by elected officials at every level of government to challenge corporate behavior and practice enough to create some catalytic event that is like Flint sit down and the employer agreements and not some massive law change at the national level? I really believe it's going to happen through workers' bravery and courage, just like it did in the late 1800s, the 30s, and throughout time, and employers deciding, I can't deal with this disruption anymore. I should just reach an agreement so we can all do better together. And, you know, the reasonableness of working people in this moment is astounding to me. Like this a fast food worker in Durham, North Carolina, Sarah Farrington, she said, listen, I really care about my customers. And I know that I get paid $3 an hour in a tip wage and I rely on tips, but I actually think I do a really good job. And I really don't want to do any other job. I just want this job to pay me enough to let my kids get an ice cream cone and make sure that they get the support they need in school so they can do better than I've done. You know, there's these basic desires that working people have to, as you say, make the essential label something that is uh, lived in real life by how they're compensated.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seed of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, Or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
0: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack.
1: Visit slack.com to get started.
2: Something that you've mentioned a couple times here is that A lot of the work that is now being classified as essential is being done by women and and, and people of color. And to add a bit of numbers to that, the Center for Economic and Policy Research looked at the demographics of of all workers and all frontline industry workers. And among all workers, 47% are female. Among frontline industries or essential workers, 65% are female. Among all workers, about 12% are African-American. Among frontline workers, 17%. What do you think is the way the demographics of these jobs have played into the way these jobs are treated, valued, um,
1: and thought about now? Direct connection. The work is undervalued because of race and gender. Full stop. I think if white men had been doing home care work, it would have had a different value, and it wouldn't have been written out of the original law based on racism and So I think it has a huge connection. And that's why this sea change that the pandemic caused in terms of opening up people's eyes to what had been invisible, you know, many, many of our building janitors have said, you know, nobody ever really noticed me walking down the hall and but damn, they sure care about what I'm doing now. And They've introduced themselves to me and now we call each other by name. And these are workers that have been in these buildings cleaning for 20 and 30 years. So there's just this basic light that has switched on that I think we need to add air and oxygen to and say, okay, you see how valuable it is. Let's actually invest in it and make these the foundation of the next most inclusive, most racially diverse uh, American middle class this nation's ever seen. You know, the last middle class was more white and this next middle class has to be as incredibly diverse as the service and care sector is and the numbers that you just wrapped down. And and what is needed
2: to to make it that way? So I know that you're on one of the new kind of biden sanders committees around healthcare, and I want to ask you specifically about, about healthcare in, in a minute, but In terms of actual labor law reform, in terms of making it possible to have this middle class get rebuilt, what do you think would have the most impact?
1: I think if uh, elected officials at any level of government saw this pandemic and the public health economic crisis as an opportunity to say to corporate leaders in their communities, come to a table. I want you to reach a mutual agreement with workers on what the health and safety protocols and practices and resources needed to keep the community safe and to flat keep the curve, if the curve is flat, stay flat, and if it isn't yet flat, to flatten it. And once we get through this phase, I want to figure out a set of understandings where you, if the workers want a union, you recognize the union and we figure out how these jobs become jobs that people can support themselves on and that taxpayers aren't subsidizing your profits. I think that would be catalytic, Ezra, and we don't need a big national labor law thing to do it. And the conditions are right for many elected officials in many parts of the country to do that. That's one. Two is, I do think we need structural change at the national level, and we need four things that we called for last August to be considered in the first hundred days in 2021. We want the next president of the United States to call corporate owners into the over office and help facilitate voluntary sectoral agreements on a national level in all parts of the uh, economy. We'd love to begin with fast food, but other workers may be more ready than us, and we'd be happy to get in line. The second thing is every tax dollar. Every federally contracted job, workers need to be able to join a union if they want to and raise wages and minimum standards should be a requirement of those federally contracted dollars. That's the second thing. The third thing is every plan to fix the economy has to hardwire the ability for workers to join unions. Healthcare, climate, college for all, all of those sectors of the economy, those workers need a chance to be able to be in a union and bargain a better life. Uh, We have 10 million healthcare workers in the country. 1.5 million are in collective bargaining organizations. The other 9 million ought to have a chance to be able to have the health and safety and security that the unionized workforce does. Just as an example,
2: when you talk about having um the capacity to join a union hardwired into these industries and into these reforms, what does that mean? I mean, there's people maybe are hearing some of these debates between sectoral bargaining and card check and 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 some of the other big picture approaches that have been put out in recent years. Are you thinking primarily of one of them or all of them? Like, how do you approach that?
1: Yeah, I think of those sectoral bargaining and card checks as a means to an end that's important to understand. So when I say hardwire, Medicare and Medicaid, 60% of every hospital receives federal tax dollars to operate. About 90% of every nursing home uses federal tax, tax dollars to operate. Home care, primarily state and local and federal. It's kind of a mix. If we were to say as a matter of public policy and the use of our tax dollars, we don't want to subsidize poverty wage jobs anymore with our tax dollars. We want government to require employers that if you get Medicare and Medicaid money, there has to be a minimum wage, there has to be paid sick, there has to be health care, depending on whether it stays employer-based, however we figure that out as a nation, and um Workers have to have the chance to join a union if they want to. You would make it a condition of participation in the Medicare system. We make a condition of participation, a lots of other things in Medicare, but we're silent on how workers are treated in that system. That's an example of hardwired. And I could tell you a similar story in higher ed and education, another story with our nation's airports. We're rebuilding our nation's airports with federal tax dollars and making them beautiful to look at. But more and more workers are falling into poverty because airlines are contracting and then subcontracting out most of the work done in our nation's airports. And so people are sleeping in airports, sleeping in their cards, because they don't earn enough to be able to afford rent. And that's just wrong. It's wrong for the economy and it's wrong morally.
2: What are the labor market trends right now that worry you the most? Are you somebody who worries over automation, replacing a lot of your workers, or do you see the kinds of workers and part of the kinds of service workers you represent as being a little bit more protected from that?
1: Well, you know, the first thought I had when you asked about trends before the example, Ezra, was 33 million people have filed for unemployment. That is a cataclysmic shift in the labor market. And I think we all better like square our shoulders and think we are in Great Depression number two. And what set of interventions are we agreeing together? Employers, government, working people, our communities. To dig ourselves out of this ditch. Um, That's one. Two, I have to tell you, every worker I've met dreams about impacting automation in their work. You know, when we first started backing the fast food workers, people would threaten the workers on the picket line, you know, because they were asking for too much. And we're going to automate your jobs. And one, I was standing beside one worker in uh, St. Louis once, and he shouted back, I want to design the code. I could design a better code than anybody because I know all the tricks in the hand movements. And I would love to learn how to train a robot to do it so I wouldn't get my hands burned anymore. And that to me was an example of turning it on its head. And I've seen it. I've seen environmental service workers in unionized settings help navigate the introduction of AI onto the hospital floor because They've done the jobs for decades. They have a lot to say about the design of artificial intelligence or robots to assist their jobs. They're all in for it. But we need to make a commitment to economic security and the transition of work. You know, Sweden guaranteed truck drivers lifetime employment in order to get truck drivers to work with AI engineers on the design of driverless trucks in Sweden. And then those truck drivers went into middle schools to help kids imagine what jobs they would do that wouldn't be trucking, because that's a good job in Sweden and kids wanna like be their dad or whatever. And so think about like a comprehensive response to transitioning to the future of work that kind of unleashes everybody's human potential. I was at a Stanford uh, Artificial Intelligence Lab for this Future of Work Commission in California. The maintenance guys that we represent on Stanford's campus came to see me at lunch, but I told them they might like to hear from the Stanford AI engineers about their innovations. And they kind of rolled their eyes when I was talking to them at the morning break. And they said, okay, Mary Kay, but, you know, they think we're all idiots. So we'll come because you asked us, but they've never asked us what we thought. And then I learned during the lunch break that these maintenance workers saw the introduction of drones to do groundskeeping. And these men have done groundskeeping and that damn campus for 25 years. They would love to have drones instead of climbing up in the trees to see about disease and stuff. But nobody knows the trees like they do and didn't know how to get the drone to see what they could see with their own eyes. And so right there in this little break, the woman who designed the whole drone thing started talking to the worker and they're now collaborating on how to actually use the drones in a way that would help improve the grounds and make it safer for the groundskeepers. Do you see what I mean? Like I've seen so many examples that if people treated service and care workers with respect and understand they have figured out a lot of things to do their jobs better because they care deeply about showing up and doing the very best they can. There's lots that we could learn that would help transform work. Instead of having engineers that have never done those damn jobs, consider how to automate them without any direct input from the front line. That that's just what's wrong about the way our country is approaching automation.
2: One of the things that has been lurking in this conversation is the idea for there that for a lot of these changes to take place, you need supportive political leadership. Joe Biden now looks like he'll be the Democratic nominee for president. SEIU, if I'm not wrong, was neutral um, as a national organization throughout the primary has your relationship with Biden been? How do you think he thinks about these issues of labor and work? What do you what do you see coming there?
1: Well, our members have been all in in trying to evaluate candidates, Ezra. So I just wanted to correct. There's nothing about SVIU that's neutral. We care very deeply about electing a champion for working people uh in this country and our lived experience with Joe Biden as a I'm Delaware. Sorry,
2: But you were you were new, you did not make an endorsement in the primary.
1: No 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 we but our members walked had them walk a day every candidate walk a day in the shoes we talked to every candidate we did probably hundreds of events with the entire democratic field uh Joe Biden came to Iowa and met for lunch with a fast food worker at his home. And that worker invited a home care worker and an adjunct professor, all of whom were trying to organize a union. And he sat and listened to their struggles and stories uh, for two hours in that home. Uh, He stood at a fast food rally in Nevada and pledged to call McDonald's to say, you need to listen to your workers and that he would do everything in his power to help fast food workers uh, win a union. So we've said to the Biden campaign that our members are on the front lines of this pandemic and we are all in fighting for PPE and that we want to work with him on holding Trump accountable for responding to the needs of working people that are dying because of government's inaction from our perspective and that we're going to work our way towards an endorsement of the vice president sometime this spring. And then we are doubling down on our commitment to speak to infrequent voters in communities of color where we've been organizing for the past 10 years and drive turnout um, that we think is life or death in this moment for the November 2020 election. And not just for president, Ezra, but for elected officials up and down the ballot.
2: I think there's been a debate in the Democratic primary um, in in which particularly a lot of people on the left who supported Bernie Sanders have felt that Biden has not been, in their view, a sufficiently reliable ally of workers. Has that been SEIU's experience or no?
1: No. You know, uh, he was, um, in the first term of uh, President Obama, he led the office of the middle class. And was deeply committed in working with us on trying to get a federal uh, contracting order that would require a level playing field between union and non-union. And he was very aggressive in helping push that through. We finally got it signed by the president two years into the second term. And Joe Biden was an incredible warrior uh, on that. I think the other thing our members have seen is that he understands care work and healthcare work because of his personal experience with the death of his first, first wife and with the death of his son most recently. And he made an incredible connection with a home care worker that asked him a question about: Does he see her, and is he willing to back her fight? to raise wages across the service and care sector. And he absolutely answered yes to her and kind of broke down in tears about how incredibly valuable uh, her job has been to his family and how wrong it is that she's not paid enough to support her own.
2: I mentioned earlier that you're on the healthcare task force that the Biden and Sanders campaigns have set up. What do you wanna see come out of that?
1: Well, I hope that uh, this pandemic has revealed the inadequacy of the current healthcare system in the country. We know that 27 million people have lost care since the pandemic started because of uh, healthcare being connected to work and because healthcare has never been affordable for large swaths of uh, the service and care economy. And because we have a broken immigration system where 19 million people, because of their status, uh, can't get access to health care. So all of those uh, problems, in my mind, Ezra, need to get addressed because our members are on fire about affordable, accessible health care for everybody, no matter where we come from, what our race, uh, what our gender. We were incredibly proud when the Affordable Care Act was passed. And we've been fighting each and every year to improve it and strengthen it. And we're going to fight again with people to universalize our healthcare system. We've been really open to the range of policy proposals. We thought the biggest thing that we needed to accomplish in the presidential campaign was to make the case on the severe problems of coverage. But I think the Kaiser report that was released today and the pandemic Have revealed that we can't have a public health system in this nation that works to address things like this epidemic if people are not going to see a doctor because they're afraid of how much it'll cost. And I've heard at least 25 stories directly from individual leaders in our union who made the choice, even though they had the symptoms of COVID 19, not to go see a doctor because they were afraid of the bill. And that's just horrific. It's, it's not just bad for that worker, but it's bad for the entire family and community.
2: So one of the things that um, has been a long time tension point in the union movement around healthcare has been whether or not it's good or bad for unions to have healthcare tied to employment. And something I've been a bit critical of Biden on is that his uh, healthcare plan backstops the employer-based system. It does a lot to make uh, healthcare more accessible, but it doesn't allow, say, people on employer care to use that money to to buy into the public option. It doesn't let the employer buy into the public option. Where where is SEIU on the question of should healthcare be linked to employment?
1: You know, I have to say, Ezra, I'm having a flashback as you asked me this question because I was sitting at the Detroit debate on July 30th. And I remember this very point being debated on the stage and I grabbed Rich Trumka's hand. He was sitting next to me and I said, Rich, this is a false choice. We cannot put the bargained health care plans of union members who I agree have clawed their way and given up wages to maintain the highest standards of health care. We can't pit that against the 22 million people who don't have access to any health care at all. And I just believe, Ezra, there's got to be a way for us to help maintain what has been won by union workers, but create a system where everybody gets equal access to care that is as good as that is. And that is the problem we got to crack as a nation. And so where we are is we object to having to make that false choice, and we want a system Um, that allows affordable, accessible healthcare for everybody, regardless of status.
2: I think that's a good place to come to an end here. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience?
1: (laughs) I love that you asked this, Ezra. One that has influenced me that I'm rereading in the pandemic was written by my mother-in-law and it's called The Dowry. And it's a series of short stories Of the legacies that were passed to her from her Italian immigrant parents. It's just a beautiful set of stories that for me are a way to kind of soothe my soul in this uh, terrible time that we're leading through. And then the second one is uh, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo because of the searing pain that I've heard from our black and brown leaders and members across our union said to me, Mary Kay, it's no surprise that we're dying in record numbers because this system's always been rigged against us and has never valued our lives. So yes, it's outrageous, but for us, it's not unexpected or unimaginable. And so this notion that Robin D'Angelo puts out in this book, Ezra, is that white people have got to speak up. We got to break the silence that we were trained to and be explicit about our uh, desire to end structural racism in this nation. And so that's been feeding my fire, I would say, uh, in this moment. And then the third one is from uh, Stacey Abrams which is called Lead from the Outside. It was just republished, I think, last year. And I was incredibly moved by her leadership in the 18 gubernatorial race. And I see her as a touchstone for creating cross-racial uh, solidarity in this moment that I think is required to change our politics. So I kind of reached for that as I was thinking about how to reimagine, given covid the way we need to campaign uh, in the 2020 presidential.
2: Mary Kay Henry, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Ezra. Good to be with you. Stay safe.
2: Thank you to Mary Kay Henry for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing, to Roger Karma for researching. The Ezra Klein Show is Vox Media podcast production.